Good evening, everyone. Thanks, Danny um, and the team for leading us so far. Thanks, Emily, for confession and assurance. Uh, my name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here at Providencia, and it's a joy to be with you this evening. Um, those of you who have been around our community a little while will know that um, we try as best we can not to shy away from controversial issues, social topics. Um, and so I want to start tonight by talking just for a moment about the renewed and intensified conflict that we have seen in Israel and Gaza over the last few days. Um, I have to admit, I don't know enough to speak with any authority, so that's not what I'm about to do. Um, I, I know that I see confusion, that I see hurt, that I see division, and I don't just see it among Israelis and Palestinians. I see it on social media here in America. Um, and I, I don't know what to do about that. I have to start on this issue with, I, I really, I don't know. Um, but three things I do know. One is that this isn't a seven-day conflict, even though it's been back on our front pages for the last seven days. It's a conflict that goes back far, far before the last seven days. Um, the second thing I know is this isn't how it ought to be. This trading of attacks is not of God. And the third thing is that our God is in the business of tearing down walls and barriers. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, work a miracle in our world. And that's, uh, that's where I can leave that. Um, our reading tonight is from Psalm 1. Um, it's not going to be on the screens behind me, actually. Um, I'm going to read it through twice. Um, and if you're comfortable, close your eyes, or um, you don't have to close your eyes, whatever. But just listen as I read Psalm 1 over us um, twice through. Blessed is the man who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take. Or sit in the company of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And he meditates on his law day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water. Which yields its fruit in season. And whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. And then once more. Blessed is the woman who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers. But her delight is in the law of the Lord, and she meditates on his law day and night. She is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever she does prospers. Not so the wicked. 
They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. This ends the reading of the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Sometimes in my interpreting the Bible class, which at least one person in here has taken, Thanks for being here, Brianna. Um, when it's time to discuss Hebrew narrative and Hebrew poetry, um, I sometimes start by asking the students a question, which is meant to get their imaginations running, meant to get their imaginations going. Um, and the question is, what's the last piece of art that moved you? It might be a painting or a sculpture Or it might be a movie, or a TV show, or a book, or a speech. It might even be a bit of landscaping or gardening. It might be a feat of athleticism. What's the last piece of art that moved you? One of my recent answers to this question would be the film Minari. Can I get a show of hands? Has anyone seen the film Minari? That's great. We got a few. Awesome. Um, It's a film written and directed by Lee Isaac Chung, uh, and it is phenomenal. I mean, it is nothing if not moving. The Boston Globe reviewer said this of the movie, it will break your heart only to piece it back together stronger than before. It's about a Korean family who moves to rural Arkansas. And just as an aside, the whole movie's actually shot in Oklahoma because Oklahoma is more beautiful than Arkansas. I don't make the rules, it's just the way it is. But the dad of this Korean family, who's named Jacob, has a dream of building a farm. And the movie explores the struggle of trying to pursue that dream. And then it weaves together themes of family and belonging, of history and ancestry. About a third of the way through the movie, the grandmother of this family comes to live with them. It's the mother of the mother. She's played by Yoon Yoo Jung, who won an Oscar for her supporting role in this film. The grandma brings with her Minari seeds to plant on the family's land in Arkansas. Minari is a Korean plant. It's a a vegetable that is very common in lots of Korean dishes, cooking. But it needs water. It has to be planted near water in order to thrive. So one day, the grandma and her grandson go on a trek to find a spot near a moving creek where the Minari can be planted. See, the Minari is a metaphor. Even through the struggles, even through the ups and downs of dreams, glimpsed, grasped, even forgotten, even as this family strives to find its place in a new place, the Minari starts to grow. And the grandma speaks of the Minari with reverence. At one point she says, The wind is blowing. 
the Minari are bowing as if they're saying thank you. And then as the movie comes to a close, I'm not going to give anything away because all of you are going to go home tonight and watch it, right? As the movie closes, Jacob, the dad, walks down to the creek with his son, and they're admiring how the Minari has taken root and started to grow on both banks of the creek and all up and down. And Jacob says, Grandma picked a good spot. And because Minari is planted by streams of water, it takes root even if it's in a foreign environment, Arkansas, as opposed to Korea. It can thrive even in struggles and trials. It's still standing even when dreams die. Minari is a metaphor. And as I thought about it alongside Psalm 1, it became for me a metaphor for happiness. See, happiness is where this psalm begins. But because the compiler of the book of Psalms, what we call the Psalter, because the compiler of the Psalter determined that this should be the first psalm in the Psalter, happiness is where the whole book begins. Now the translations vary. But as I read in the NIV and most other English translations, we find the first word is something like blessed or blessed. You sort of have to say it with a southern accent to get two or three syllables out of it so that you get the effect of blessedness. It's a word that strikes me as having been over-spiritualized in a sense. But it's actually helpful, I think, because it, it gets us out of the idea of mere circumstances, even if just for a moment. So maybe, for just a moment, the over-spiritualizing of this term has had the effect of helping us to get closer to the meaning. It's a scandalous thought at Providencia, but let's not always throw out the baby with the bathwater. But we also get different translations among Hebrew Bible scholars. So John Golden Gay translates the phrase good fortune instead of blessed. And Robert Alter translates happy, along with a couple of other translations. And these translations bring us right back to circumstances. Happiness, after all, is circumstantial, right? Good fortune is certainly circumstantial. It's right there in the phrase. If it's good fortune, then bad fortune is lurking somewhere around the corner. But it turns out, happy is also a helpful translation here. Which isn't to dismiss the blessed translations, but it is to point out that there are circumstantial analogies and images used throughout this psalm. There's the idea of producing fruit. Or having leaves that don't wither. Those are circumstantial images. The idea of everything that this person does prospering or thriving, that's circumstantial. So this entire book of songs and hymns, these prayers of thanksgiving and lament, 
where the circumstances of life are set front and center. And then they're wrestled with. They're brought before God. They're cried out in a void. They're whispered in the night. This whole collection begins by holding up happiness and explaining it to us a little bit and implicitly encouraging us to live in it. But this idea of blessedness, of good fortune, of happiness, runs through other parts of the Bible as well. It's all over the Proverbs. But it also gets picked up by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. All of this is the same idea as the opening of Psalm one. So what does Psalm 1 have to reveal to us about happiness? I think it's three things, at least. First, happiness is relative. Second, happiness is communal. And third, happiness is a statement of belief. First, let's look at all the ways that happiness is relative in this psalm. It's not just the circumstances of prosperity or the circumstances of producing fruit. There's a relativity to the comparison and contrast that runs all the way through this psalm. Now some translations name the contrast as being between the righteous and the wicked. Some translations name it as a contrast between the faithful and the unfaithful. But whatever the translation, the good person is good by comparison to the bad person. It's not that you all are good and you all are bad, by the way. This is just, this is a memory device. I'm going to keep my rhythm if I just keep shifting, right? Y'all are good and bad and y'all are good and bad. Whatever the translation, the good person is good by comparison to the bad person. The righteous person doesn't do what the wicked person does. And the wicked person's consequences in this psalm are exactly the opposite of the righteous person's consequences. The faithful person doesn't stand in the counsel of the unfaithful. And then at the end of the psalm, the unfaithful will be unable to stand in the assembly of the faithful. The comparison and contrast runs all the way through the psalm. And it highlights the way that happiness in the opening word of this psalm is relative to faithfulness. But that's not the only relativity here. It's also in the central image in verse 3. That planted tree. But it's a tree that's not just planted anywhere. Just like the grandma in Minari picked a good spot by the creek, the faithful person is like a tree planted by streams of water. The faithful person is faithful, is fruit-bearing, is resistant to withering by nature of its relative position to the stream. This is the exact same metaphor that Jesus uses in our gospel reading from last week that Keith talked about. Jesus is the vine, and we are the branches. 
If we abide in him and he in us, we will bear much fruit. This is relativity. Happiness is relative. Or maybe there's a better way for us to put it. Maybe instead we say happiness is relational. As long as the branches are intimately related to the vine such that they dwell inseparable, the branches bear fruit. When the tree is planted by streams of water, it takes root and it grows established and strong, bearing fruit and maintaining its leaves even in and out of season. Happiness is relational. But because of that, it's also communal. One of the most powerful images in all of the movie Minari, and this can be seen in the trailer, so again, no spoilers here. Go and watch it tonight. One of the most powerful images is of this struggling family, a family that has wrestled with contrary opinions and contrary dreams, a family that has suffered loss and pain, a family that is isolated. This family wakes up together on the floor. In our first apartment after we got married, Brittany and I were living outside Chicago, and there's this thing with, I don't, I don't know if it's in other regions of the country, but in Chicago at least, it was pretty common for some older apartment buildings to have this heating system where there were hot water pipes that ran through the floor. And that's how the apartment got heated, which was wonderful in the winter, cold winters in Chicago, really terrible in the summer. And we didn't have central air conditioning. All we had was one single window unit, and it was in the living room. So what did we newlyweds do? We slept on the floor underneath the window unit for weeks while the daytime temperatures were like 95 and the nighttime temperatures were 80. It was sweltering inside the house unless you were standing or sleeping in front of the window unit. Waking up on the floor together is already an image of intimacy and community for me. But when I saw this Korean family on the screen wake up on the floor together. It hit home in a new way. It's a turning point for this family. They need each other because happiness is communal. It can be tempting for us to interpret this psalm through our individualist lens. It's a lens that we wear quite naturally as 21st century Westerners. We might read, happy is the person who isn't like those terrible people. A happy person and terrible people. Happy is the person whose me and God time of meditation is what keeps them anchored. Or happy is the person who wins the day because the Lord watches over their path. And all of that is part of the imagery of this psalm. But as John Golden Gay helpfully observes, the solitary faithful person at the beginning of this psalm 
is reminded that she or he is but one member of an assembly of the faithful in verse 5. And only one of a group of faithful travelers along the path of righteousness in verse 6. See, what starts individually in Psalm 1 ends communally. And just as an aside, this is why Danny and I have conversations all the time about our contemporary worship songs, which most often are I this and me that and my everything. And so Danny and I talk about getting some plural pronouns into our songs sometimes. And Paradise Hymn's most recent song is filled with plural pronouns. I'm very thankful to Paradise Hymns. I love all of them and everyone involved in that process. But sometimes we'll even sing a song here at Providencia where we start with the singular pronouns, I this and me that and my everything, but we'll finish the song with the plural pronouns, we and our and us. And all of a sudden the imagery of the whole song changes just like in this psalm. So we're reminded here in Psalm 1 that happiness, blessedness, good fortune, prospering, and thriving cannot be done alone. Happiness is relational, and therefore it is communal. But wait a second. As you've probably guessed, Minari isn't a story about some standard point A to point B acquisition of the American dream. Jacob and his family experience racism, isolation, setbacks, and failure along the way. Even though they toil and strive and work together and pray, still they are met with difficulties. And in the end, any success that Jacob finds on his farm doesn't really have to do with him. Which makes me start to question the truth of this psalm. I wonder, have you ever met a righteous person whose plans didn't prosper? Or have you ever met a wicked person who seemed to harvest fruit on top of fruit? The psalmists have. See, Israel's poets know full well that the truth of this psalm doesn't always hold true. Have you ever been that person who's trying to do the right thing at work? But it always seems like someone is waiting to catch you in a mistake. The psalmists call these enemies encamped at the gates. Or have you ever been striving for faithfulness and seen one venture after another fail and collapse? The psalmists show us how to ask why. And they show us how to demand a different result. If you've ever felt alone or isolated because of trying to be faithful, the psalmists have you covered on that too. 
So if the reality of life includes faithful people who fail and faithless people who prosper, why does the book of Psalms start like this? This psalm states how the world ought to be. But so many of the rest of the psalms talk about the world as it really is. And if we all know that this idealized picture of morality and the consequences of living morally, if we all know it doesn't hold up to our experience, then what are we to take from the beginning of this book of Psalms. Maybe happiness is a statement of belief. Maybe it's doing something even when you don't want to do it. Maybe it's the tangibility and the repetition of murmuring this psalm over and over again. Maybe it's the tangibility and the repetition of murmuring God's teaching over and over again that leads to happiness. See, where the NIV translates meditate in this phrase, but their delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law they meditate day and night. Robert Alter translates murmur. It's because the idea behind this word meditate in an ancient Near Eastern culture like Israel's culture is meant to be audible recitation. Even if it's done quietly, it's done audibly. Israelite culture was an oral culture. So the way that children and adults learned and meditated on God's law was by reciting it out loud, even if they were by themselves. This was what meditating meant to them. Now, we certainly need some silence in our lives. Silent meditation can be a good thing, especially in the midst of the constant noise and distraction that bombards us in a 21st century culture. We need some silence sometimes. But it's important to point out that the meditation that is being held up for us in Psalm 1 is oral. It's a physical moving of our lips. It's a vocalizing of God's teaching as an act of faith. We demonstrate our faithfulness by repeating the words of faith, even if sometimes we find ourselves doubting those very words. And this is precisely what I'm trying to get at by saying happiness is a statement of belief. When we are open enough with ourselves, open enough with our community and with our God to admit when things are not right, to admit when life is not blessed or fortunate or happy at all, when we are open enough to admit that and still to meditate on, to murmur God's teaching, to murmur this psalm, then we are still pointed at happiness. 
sometimes saying, I am not happy, is the most blessed, aimed at happiness thing you can do. I am not happy. But I believe that happy is the person who does not walk with the wicked, even when the wicked walk beside them. I believe that happy is the person who does not sit with those who scoff at justice. I believe happy is the person who does not entertain those who mock the merciful. I believe happy is the person who builds toward the world of God's justice. The world of poetic justice that is laid out for us here in Psalm 1. So in some way that doesn't always make sense to me, but still seems profound, happiness is a statement of belief. It's an act of faith. Psalm 1 isn't a promise. Any more than any of the other psalms are. They're not promises. Psalm 1 is a wisdom psalm, which is to say it's meant to embody wisdom, or rather point us to wisdom. It's a glimpse, an image, a thin place, where even us humans can find a direction, can find an arrow pointing to the heart of God. To a path, down a path already known by God. A path that does not perish, the end of this psalm tells us. A path that makes us faithful even as we strive to be faithful. Lord Jesus, I do believe, help my unbelief. That path which is known by God, then helps us to know God. Helps us to relate back to God. Happiness, like faithfulness, is relational. It's communal. And it takes us believing it over and over again, like a daily affirmation. Let's pray.